This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And today I had the pleasure of speaking with Erica Tremblay, writer and director of Fancy Dance, as well as her co-writer, Michiana Elise. The film premiered this year at Sundance and today, March 10th, is having its Texas premiere at South by Southwest. If you don't have tickets to today's screening, there are more screenings. Check it out on the website. What I loved about this conversation is we got to speak about the journey of making this film in particular and Erica's many milestones along the way flexing into different formats. For example, her short film, which we covered here on the No Film School website in 2020, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. It's called Little Chief. On top of that, Erica is a TV writer and was the executive story editor on Dark Winds, an AMC series produced by George R.R. R. Martin and Robert Redford. And she is currently the executive story editor on season two of Reservation Dogs, Sex, where she also directed an episode. We also get into the details of how Erica and Michiana teamed up together to write this feature and get into the details of their co-writing relationship. The film Fancy Dance is centered around Jax, a Native American hustler who kidnaps her niece after her sister's disappearance, though it might not be so cut and dry because her niece has been forced to stay with her white grandparents, and they together set out for the state powwow in hopes of keeping what is left of their family intact. So without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. I'm here with the team of Fancy Dance, uh, Erica Tremblay, the director and writer, and Michiana Elise, the co-writer for the film. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. (laughs) Um, Just so our our listeners can hear, do you want to just say who you are and, um, and what your role was? Sure. My name is Erica Tremblay. Uh, I am the co-writer, producer, and director of Fancy Dance. I am from the Seneca Cayuga Nation in Oklahoma. And I'm Michiana Elise. I am the co-writer of Fancy Dance, and I am from the Tlingit Nation in Alaska. It's actually so refreshing, Erica, that you mentioned that you're also a producer on it, because I think we just, you know, automatically are like director, but you did so much more on this film. Before we get into some of the the process of creating the story together, can one of you tell me a little bit about what the film is for our listeners who may not have seen it? You're you're much better at that <laughs> description, so I'll let you do it. <laughs> um, sure. Fancy Dance follows a Native American woman who gets by by hustling the white folks that that come through her reservation in Oklahoma. Uh, When her sister goes missing, she becomes the unlikely caretaker to her 13-year-old niece, Roki. The state deems Jax unfit to be her caretaker, so they remove her 
from her reservation and the only home she's ever known and place her with a white foster family. Jax then kidnaps Roki back out of that, or we like to say rescues Roki Mm -hmm. out of that situation. And the two of them embark on a road trip to get to the yearly powwow in the hopes of finding the sister slash mother there. And so your your story taps into like a major issue, which is removing children from their homes and from their caretakers and rehousing them. Is that something that you both originally wanted to explore or what was your way into this story? Yeah, we kind of had two themes that we wanted to touch upon. It's it's hard to be an indigenous filmmaker and not have some po- like politics are involved in in our art. And um, yeah, there's an epidemic across North America of indigenous women being murdered and indigenous folks, really not just women, being missing and, and murdered from our communities. It's the rates are so astronomically high that it's just something that we all experience as indigenous folks. And and then yes, right now there's a Supreme Court case that's challenging uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which if if overturned will make our communities less safe, will allow our children to be removed from our our communities at even higher rates. And so for us, you know, we didn't set out to make a dark film in any way. And I think if people watch it, they'll come away. It's not a procedural, it's not a, it's not a cop show or, you know, like it's not a thriller in that aspect, but we do touch upon these topics that we hope can shine a little bit of light on some of the the struggles that Indian country has with outside forces coming in and trying to tell us how we should be living on our sovereign lands. Yeah, and it was just a really natural thing to include because it is such a common occurrence and something that we can all relate to across Indian country. Mm -hmm. Erica's living in New York. I'm from Alaska, living in Washington. And these are stories that without even before we knew each other, like when she presented the story, it was something I could relate to immediately because it's that common. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like she said, we didn't set out to be like, you know, this is our political movie and this is why you should care. It's just it's our it's what our lives look like. Yeah. So how could we not talk about these things? Right, right. It, it it naturally fits into the narrative without question. And to your point, Erica, the you know, this is a film that deals with and tackles head on a lot of these topics that are so prevalent today. But it also is a film that has lightness and playfulness and and you know Lily Gladstone who plays Jax is this like just dynamic character that I haven't seen on screen and it's so refreshing because I feel like you know I'm like oh well this is somebody like I I have a Jax in my life and mm-hmm. and and there is such a dynamic between the Jax and her her niece Roki that brings the the fun to it as well yeah, that was that was really fun to play with because we are native culture like so much of it is grounded in humor and we have this saying in my community where it's like if we're not picking on you if we're not teasing you then you haven't really been welcomed into the oh. community because humor is so much at the core of who we are and it was so fun to see Lily and Isabel who plays Roki like even between shots, they were teasing each other. So it was just such a natural thing for them. And to see it in the film is its one of the most rewarding parts for me. So how did you two meet? What's your meet cute as writers? 
We both were um, Sundance Indigenous Lab fellows, and we actually met here at Sundance. We had been, you know, part of the lab, and then they brought all of the fellows here, and we met in person, and we, you know, went and watched films with our cohort, and we palled around and. Flash forward a couple of years, I had premiered my short film, Little Chief, here at Sundance in 2020, and I started outlining a feature, and the pandemic hit, and I was kind of writing the feature, and I was it was a lonely time. It was kind of like a tumultuous time, and I didn't really feel like I could sustain the several months of development and writing the script alone, given... Yeah just the way the world was and the topics of the film. And so I remember remembered having read Michiana's script and just so talented and so wonderful. And so I I hit, hit her up on her DMs <laughs> and I said, do you remember me? Like, I have this project. Like, would you want to write with me? Then we were, you know, embarked on a multi-month collaboration where through Zoom we met and wrote the script together. And when you were developing it, what was the process like? Were you beating out every scene and every moment within the scenes before you were writing pages? Or were you taking stabs at pages and passing it back and forth? I feel like it was a little bit of everything. We would definitely like set up, okay, where do we want the story to go? And then as we got further into writing, we we joke all the time, like, we can't even tell anymore really who wrote what because we were, like, writing over each other and reiterating and, mm-hmm. like, doing all these things. And I, I it was the most amazing process that I've ever been a part of because I always tell Erica I hated group projects in school. So I was a little scared to uh-huh. collaborate on especially something like a script where it's so personal and you get so invested and you're giving a part of yourself but it was it was amazing and it just flowed and you know our our writing styles really complemented each other and we were really supported throughout the process so actually Erica you're the only person that we have talked to here at the festival so far that is also has a foot in the episodic space so it's it's actually not surprising to hear that you are such a great collaborator because you have been in writer's rooms and working as a story editor, which I think sometimes that title is a bit confusing for folks who aren't familiar, but you are in the writer's room, but you're also helping break the story at a a higher level. So what was it like um, moving from episodic into a feature? Yeah, it kind of all was happening at the same time. So I've been at this a while and I've wanted to be a filmmaker for a very long time or a writer, director, really interested in in film and television. And when my short film came in 2020, I started getting bites from managers and agents and I was able to get representation and then kind of the offers to be and to staff in rooms started coming in. And I was staffing in these rooms while Michiana and I were writing the script. So Mm -hmm. it really was a growth period for me across both. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've been able to be uh, an executive story editor. I'm a co-producer this year on season three of Reservation Dogs. And so it's, it's interesting that in the last in-person festival was in 2020 and here we are in 2023 with the feature. And it's kind of a, um, I realized that giving my inter speech at Eccles the other night, 
like, whoa, what, how much has been accomplished in three years? Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, I mean, they, it all feeds into each other. Like being a storyteller for me, it's interesting to see how you can apply your practice across different genres, across different formats, across different platforms. And I, I absolutely love the collaborative nature of writer's rooms and mm-hmm. I love being in them. I don't like, for me, writing is just terrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, am, I am in pain the entire time. I struggle. I have anxieties. I suffer greatly <laughs> while I'm writing. It's very rewarding at the end of the work, but mm-hmm. doing the work itself is very um, painful and I avoid it and procrastinate as much as possible. So for me, having people surrounding me either in the writer's room or with my collaboration with Michiana, it makes it a little less painful that you're not just alone in these like deep, dark, scary pages and you can support each other and uplift each other and you know, Michiana would write scenes and I would write over them and I would write scenes and Michiana would write over them. And there's just this symbiotic relationship of ideas and talent and knowledge that's like passing through two people ending up on the page. And it's quite dynamic and wonderful. And I'm always, when I'm writing my television episodes, sometimes I'm like, man, I wish Michiana was here. But I also know that it's important to stretch muscles and do it alone, do it together. And you know, I implore other writers to experiment and find, you know, different ways that work for them. Um, but yeah. I'm curious to hear about breaking the story of Fancy Dance. What was a problem that you were encountering with the story and how did you find a solution or what was something that ultimately became, uh, oh, this is how we're going to access this character or how we're going to get from A to D? Which is something that we hear a lot about, a lot more in the right in writers' rooms. Like, oh, we're breaking the story. We go from our blue sky thinking to to figuring out how to get there. But I have yet to to hear from a screenwriting team about like a true breakthrough moment. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive ten day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. Well, what immediately comes to mind for me is there's one scene. That's a dinner scene with Jax and Roki, and they're at Jax's white father's house with his new wife, who also happens to be white. And there are so many different wants and people pushing for their goals in this scene, and they're all bumping into each other. And that scene took us months to work out. And it's, it, I mean, it's a pretty short scene, but with that much going on in it, it was, we wrote it over and over and over. We had our mentors, you know, help us through it. And I can't remember like a moment of breakthrough, but I think it was just that process of 
revisiting it at different times throughout our writing process. Like no matter where we were in the rest of the script, we would keep coming back to that and finding new things to add to it or something that didn't need to be there anymore. And I think that was probably the biggest thing is learning what the characters didn't need to say. That was probably the biggest breakthrough that I felt is just letting them breathe in that uncomfortable moment mm-hmm. and like seeing seeing where the characters wanted to lead us. Yeah. That that was my aha moment with that. Now, when you took this scene into let's actually run with this scene in particular because not only is it a a scene that seemed like that took time to work through, but it's also a scene at a table, which is notoriously hard to shoot. Yeah. So what was bringing it from the page to, I was going to say the stage, but uh, it's a we're, practical location maybe from a director's standpoint? Yeah, I do remember. It's funny that you bring up that scene because we did, we wrote that scene over and over and over again. And it was a c- complicated emotionally for everyone that was involved and the big breakthrough when we were writing the scene is when we had Jax and Roki flip to Cayuga. And that wasn't in the script for many iterations of that. And we, I don't remember what the aha moment was, but we were like, oh, these two characters speak a language that the other two don't know. Mm-hmm. So if we allow them to have a secret, we allow them to have a back and forth, we can cr- bring something more dynamic to, mm-hmm. to the scene. And it infused it with tension mm-hmm. and also kind of like showed the differentiation between the dad and the stepmom character and the this like inner relationship with Jackson Roki. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when I was working with my wonderful cinematographer, Carolina Costa, when we got to that scene, most of the scene is shot just very simply center of frame across the table. It's either a two shot or a single shot and it's very conventional. And then when Jackson and Roki jump into Cayuga, we bump into French overs and it creates, it helps to create that tension and it helps to have Jackson and Roki be in a different world and in a different visual world mm-hmm. as they're speaking in Cayuga. And then kind of the biting moment of that scene is Roki asks a question out of desperation and Jax responds to her in English, kind of shutting down this this mission that Roki's on and Mm -hmm. betraying her in a way by flipping back to English. And we pop out of the French overs when Jax pops back into English. And so that, you know, we really tried to express that in our visual language. And one thing that we experience as filmmakers is how the page will be different from what's on set. Sometimes there will be discoveries made there and also intention put into like placing the camera to create this moment or underline this moment. And then when you get to the edit and you're finding, well, I guess this we had this line said, but we actually don't need it. And in Michiana, you mentioned the importance of finding what was unsaid, but let's talk about editing this scene in particular. Yeah, I think we had workshopped the scene so much that we didn't have to do a lot in terms of pulling out things. I think it remained largely what was written, Mm -hmm. and it was then just trying to find the pacing. Nancy, um, played by Audrey Wazalewski in the film, is doing a lot in this scene. She's propelling things forward, and so we chose to edit the scene when we're not in our French overs. We're kind of 
living through her clumsily moving through this like communication to these indigenous women. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I I will say that there were a lot of times in the film where we did explore losing, losing things. And I remember Michiana and I both went through the screenwriters lab here at Sundance and the director's lab. And one of our very generous mentors was Scott Frank Mm -hmm. of Queen Gambit's fame and so many others. And he was just so generous over the process that even after his like mandated time with us, like he's taken meetings and calls and been such a part of the process. And I remember just lamenting to him. I'm like, I'm stuck. I just, this movie's terrible. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he was just like, you have to remember that you're still directing in post. Right. And you have to use all of the resources at your disposal. And I was kind of going into it as this is my first feature that if you're recording ADR, then that means that you've made a mistake in the writing and that you've made a mistake in your directing. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, ADR is a tool. It's a director's tool. Mm -hmm. You need to think of it as part of the editing process. And how can you, if you reach a a place that you're having a problem, how can you look at all of your your tools, Mm -hmm. whether it's music or sound design or ADR? And that, that piece of mentorship advice from Scott Frank broke me open in, in the edit. And I remembered that I'm still the director of this film. Right. And I have all of these tools at my disposal and I should not be afraid of ADR. It's not a, it's not a, um, you know, a, it's not a, what's the word? It's not a crutch. It's right. A, it's not right. a, it's not saying that I've done a bad job. What it is, is it's allowing me to do my job. Right. And so right. that made the editing process much better. And while we didn't do that in this scene particularly, I think it's an illustration of kind of like what you're asking with the question. We uh, we had the birth rebirth team on as well, and they had Scott Frank as a mentor mm-hmm. too. So we're hearing a lot of positive Scott Frank talk in in this experience. He's but, amazing, <laughs> but, but also I think it's it's important to remember that in the you have to write the version of the scene that will then be shot and then be edited down because it's part of the... And I think he gave this advice to the Birth Rebirth team because there were entire scenes that were cut. But the actors were able to get that history and uh, and, and see the full picture. And so it's not a, a loss if something ends up on the cutting room floor. It's actually, like, I think a... It's so so much better to have the insight to be able to whittle down to what is needed to make the moments pop and make the story work. One of another one of my mentors, Sterling Harjo, who's the showrunner for Reservation Dogs mm-hmm. at FX, he has always implored me to not have an ego. And I think that that's kind of what you're talking about a bit is that like you can't be precious about anything. And we lost so many scenes that we loved that were beloved on the page but when we went to the editing room they just didn't work and we wrapped like in late September and so we had a very 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 short editing window and I had like a post-it note that that I kept in my workspace that just said ferocious Mm -hmm. like just be ferocious you cannot hang your ego on any one scene you can't be precious about it and so I just went in on that first cut and just slashed. And it was hard at first, but once you start moving and you're thinking about your characters and you're thinking about the film over yourself, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is Mm -hmm. actually really hard to do because we're all so attached to our creative and also attached to what we've done. I just, you know, 
make the 85 minute version and then find out what else you want to put back into it. And that's, what? and that's what we did. And now, you know, we've been applauded as we like, thank goodness it's only 90 minutes. <laughs> well, it would have been a lot longer if we would have left all the fluff inside. I mean, that is such great actionable advice and something that I'm like imagining as the title of this podcast, because I, I've watched you know, we've we've all seen the indie films that feel like they are sh- showing us something just because they shot it, mm-hmm. and or because they want to reach a certain length, or they feel that. And 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 I sometimes it just rubs me the wrong way because because I'm like our, our time is valuable, the the story is valuable, and you need to honor the story too. Um, and so I love that as a tool of suck it all out and then and then reinfuse it as needed. That what great actionable advice. Now, when you were in production, what was the biggest challenge of this shoot, and how did you overcome it? Oh my gosh! I mean, freak heat wave in an already hot and humid state. Uh-huh. Um, it was so hot while we were shooting the film. It broke over 100 almost every single day we were shooting. There was obviously almost probably most of the films that you're speaking with COVID was is a is a big challenge. I think if we're going to get like really granular in terms of like one of the things that was vital to doing is our our big set piece at the end of the film mm-hmm. is a powwow and because of COVID and all of the the union rules and guidelines like we couldn't actually like attend an event that was happening for the safety of the cast and crew. And so we had to actually throw a powwow. So we had to like bring in 200 extras, test them, find the location, bring in the vendors, bring in the drum group, bring in the MCs. And it was like (laughs) the third week we shot. So it was like toward the end and we were all just like shaking and like, it was all leading up to, can we actually pull this off? And I remember that we did, we pulled it off and it felt a little bit like going downhill for the rest of the shoot. But I don't know, Michiana, what do you, th- what else do you think? No, yeah, that powwow was, I mean, you could feel the tension, everybody going, how in the world are we going to get this done? And, you know, as the co-writer, I'm sitting back and just like <laughs> cheering everybody on, like, I believe in you guys. But I think it's really a testament to, to Erica and her ability as a director, because, I mean, this is her first feature, but to pull off that powwow in the middle of COVID and in the middle of all these other things going on, it was nothing short of a miracle. And it looks beautiful on the screen. It really does. And I'm actually surprised to hear that it was a completely staged set piece because it has uh, like this vivid liveliness to it that I was like, oh, they went and did it. This is like, this is this is real life. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, first-time filmmaker, also independent film, with when creating a set piece that had such scale, how were you thinking about it? And and you know, there's 200 extras, but it still feel it feels like there's like thousands of people there. So, how did you uh, approach shooting it to get more bang for your buck? 
Yeah, I mean, we definitely are not the we're, we're not a a film with a high enough budget to pull something like this off. Like it was definitely a challenge. We were low budget film, but we knew how important the the last scene and the set piece of the film was, and so we just reached out to community. I think that was like the the cornerstone of success for us. Our choreographer Holly is so infused in the Oklahoma powwow scene and everyone loves her so dearly that she was able to just reach out to all the dancers, reach out to the drum groups, reach out to the vendors and say, Hey, listen, like I'm doing this film. It's going to be worth it for you to come and shoot overnight. (laughs) And one of the things that, that we did is I, I went to my producers and I said, I need $3,000. And you know, for us, $3,000 is a lot. And they're like, why do you need $3,000? And I was like, because I need raffle prizes for the powwow. And Michiana and I went over one of the weekends before the powwow and we bought a bunch of raffle prizes and we bought like the most, the biggest flat screen TV at Walmart. Yes. And we just, you know, you know, extras aren't getting paid, what, $150 a day or something. And we were expecting them to shoot from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. overnight. And so we raffled prizes off all night and I knew being Native American, <laughs> I knew that these Indians would stick around for the flat screen TV. We love a raffle. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. We had so many people that wanted to win that flat screen TV. And one of the producers came up to me after and they were like, that is the best $3,000 that we spent on this film. So smart. And so part of it is just like, you know, why it's so important for people to make films about things that they know and about the communities that they're in is that you can navigate those in a way that other people might not have known to buy a flat screen TV. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the visual storytelling, I worked with Carolina, my DP, and we had a little model that we, uh, a shoddily made little model and and floor plans of the space. Mm -hmm. And we had every single moment of that exchange kind of like passed out. Yeah. We we knew we only had a short amount of time. We knew we had finite resources. And so we just prepared the hell out of mm-hmm. that night. And we shot it exactly the way that we planned it. And it works. We are right there with her and we're traveling through the space. You get pieces of the culture and things around. And then, you know, I won't give away the ending, but it breaks open right when it needs to. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we were going to accomplish that in the shoe for in the few short hours that we had was just to be as prepared as we possibly could be. How many weeks did you have to do prep and how how long were you shooting for? Very long. We had four weeks of prep and then we shot for 25 or 26 days. Got it. Full and days and a couple of nights. Yeah, we had we had quite a few overnight shoots actually. Quite a bit of the story takes place at night. And we were shooting with a minor, which is another thing that's difficult, but we just followed the rules and found ways to to make it happen. And we also needed an extra day with COVID and with other things, we fell behind a bit. And so that was also a challenge was, you know, as a producer on the film, just recognizing that we weren't going to make it with the days and not being frivolous, trying to just spend extra money, but like, what do we really need to pull this off? And yeah. so we were able to raise enough money in add a day. And I think that that's just like the constant balance of making a film is what's what do you really need to accomplish this? 
where are the places that you can, you know, splurge a little and hold back in other ways so that you can like make certain things work, but it's just a constant dance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think going back to something you touched on there is having the right people behind the scenes because the crew that we worked with, some of the people that provided financing, they really believed in this story because it's an authentic Native American story about these women told by Native American women. So it was something that a lot of people haven't seen before. A lot of people wanted to see and wanted to be a part of. And I don't think we could have got it done with people who were just throwing money at it for, you know, the heck of it. It it was that deeper belief and and really wanting to be a part of the project that made the difference. Were there any potential partners that you ended up passing on because they didn't have that conviction for the project? I don't think so. I mean, we were lucky enough to go through the Sundance Labs. And with that, there's um, like the producer's program allows you to like go through and meet a lot of different financiers and like you round tables or like, you know, I don't know. It's like speed dating. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you sit. And, and you um, were in the producer's program too. Yeah. So you've been in the directing lab, the writing lab, and the producing lab. Yeah. Deidre Bax went through the producing lab from our project. Michiana and I did the writers. And then I did the directors. We also did the indigenous intensive. So I think it was five lab, four or five labs total yeah. for this project. But but yeah, so you go and we, you know, we pitched the project to a bunch of folks and kind of just like with anything else there were people that that were like really into it and then there were people that were like you know this isn't right for either of us but I would say that we when um Heather Ray and Nina Yang Bong Jovi came on and then Tommy Oliver came in it was just like this is the team you yeah. know we we Deidre myself and Michiana had been developing it and then we found these partners that just the films that they'd made prior and their track record and mm-hmm. their belief in telling these stories. I mean, I remember our first call with Nina, who's produced some of my absolute favorite films. She was just fiery and she was like ready to take on the world with fancy dance. And yeah. she was already like defending us to like <laughs> would be like villains or whatever. And and uh, I was like, wow, like th- having that kind of passion from your producers is exactly what you want. And so it was just easy to move from that. I mean, we moved fast. And I, I feel very grateful that we started writing the script in March of 2020. And here we are sitting with a script that was written, that was financed and produced and edited. And so I'm... I keep telling myself, Erica, this probably won't happen with every project that you make, that it will happen this fast. Um, Tempering future expectations. So we felt that swing of momentum and we just never let the momentum slow down. Yeah. And we just kept pushing and kept pushing until we were able to, to birth the project. Yeah. Now, moving into future projects, what learnings will you take from Fancy Dance into your into your next projects? Oh my gosh. I learned so much. Like, I don't know if we mentioned it once we started recording or not, but neither of us went to film school. And so we love that. <laughs> we love to hear yeah, it. Yeah. So it's it's an epic uphill battle, but we learned so much along the way. 
I mean, even the way that I I set out to write a script now is so different because of this whole process and just the way you think about uh, what what your words on the page will eventually look like when you're shooting it. It's changed so much in my mind and, you know, keeping keeping in mind all the work that people have to do to make these pages come to life. It's like, oh, I need to be a more considerate writer, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's changed my entire process. And can I, you speak a little bit about like a scene that you started to write and then you're like, this is me being a not not a considerate writer? Oh goodness. I don't know that I could point to a specific scene, but I know that at one point in our process, we had our script and it was in a fairly good place, but there were things that were not either not gonna fit in what we wanted to shoot or just didn't feel right story-wise. And we made this insane document that like, (laughs) we made a spreadsheet of every scene and like, okay, what does this character want? What does this character want? Where's this, where do they end up later in the story? And it was like, it had to be like a hundred pages. It was a lot, but yeah. So just having those things in mind, the practicality behind your writing, that's, that's changed for me a lot. Yeah, we liked a good Google Doc on this. I think <laughs> yeah. I I produced advertising and and I worked in publishing for many years prior to this and so my brain in many ways works from a can this be reality? Um and so we we were thinking a lot about that and it was still a very ambitious first feature given the amount of characters and the amount of locations, but but we just you know, kept things as close to 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 being possible as we could as we were writing. But to answer the question about like, you know, what have I learned or how will this change things moving forward? You know, I've wanted to be a filmmaker since I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. It's It's been my dream. It's been what I've always wanted to do. And, you know, I moved out to LA and I worked in, in assistant positions for a while and development positions for a while and for so many years everyone just told me no you can't do this like no one wants to hear from a female director no one wants to hear about queer stories like no one wants to hear about indigenous stories and and it was because of that that I pivoted and and took a job in the advertising industry i'm 42 years old and this is my first feature and i think that the success of the short film and now being able to premiere my first feature at Sundance, if nothing else, I feel like someone's finally saying yes. Yeah. And having that first yes come from the Sundance Institute is so important. And so I think what I will leave from this experience is I will have confidence that my stories are important and that our stories are important. And I will hopefully never let those negative voices and all of those no's influence my my choices and, and influence my prowess in any way. And hopefully I can just continue making things with confidence and mm-hmm. and love. And and it it means a lot to have a door open in front of you. And right. and hopefully Michiana and I being here and representing our communities will help open doors that have been opened by others that came before us. And, right. and um, yeah, I just really hope that I get to keep doing this because, wow, what a dream. What a dream. 
I, I, I think that it's so important for future generations of filmmakers to see people who look like them or are the same gender or the idea of, you know, I actually didn't even let myself be a creative for a long time because I was like, well, all the dudes are doing it. And I didn't even it didn't cross my mind that I could be a director. And so it's like it's critical to like you are opening doors. You are also helping people set their dreams as little girls. And I and and so to the 12 year old who is watching your film, there will not be a doubt that they can do it, you know, that she can do it. And I think that's something that a lot of people who aren't in positions don't even recognize the importance of that. You know, my partner is a male director and uh, and and we talk a lot about this because he, from age seven, had no doubt that he could do it. He's like, I can do anything I want except be a basketball player because I'm not tall enough. <laughs> and 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 to that is a privilege to have no doubt. So thank you for opening up about that. And now do you know what's next with the film? Do you know what's next with the careers? Well, we hope that we sell the movie. We hope we find an audience. You know, we we are hopeful that 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 we will find that audience. And you know, for me, as soon as I get back, I've got to finish my Res Dogs episode, and <laughs> and and we'll see what happens. Nonstop. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens in the next um, in the next few weeks. I'm. I'm um, hoping to start developing a grounded horror film and I'm, you know, interested in, you know, doing more. I've got a, uh, we're developing a television series, Sterling Harjo and I with, um, um, with this great book. And so there's just a lot on the horizon and, and Michiana and I, you know, we want to write another script together as well. So hopefully there's just a lot more to come. Yep, just got to keep writing. That's that's my plan. Is I'm going back home and I got a few irons in the fire, and then I'm gonna pull this one aside and try and get on another one of her projects soon. So yeah. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, where can our listeners follow your work? Um, I'm terrible at all sorts of social media, but if you really, really want to find <laughs> me, I'm on Instagram at Erica J Tremblay. And I'm on Instagram as Michiana underscore Elise. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thank you to our listeners. Um... Thank you to Erica and Michiana for joining and to our listeners for tuning in. I felt inspired by this conversation to think big with stories, even on a small budget. This is an expansive world road trip movie in, told in a way that I haven't seen before with an ending that proves you can really do a lot without that much. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast across all platforms. And you can find us on the web at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at nofilmschool. And you can email us your questions at editor at nofilmschool.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.